Hello, and welcome to Homicide, Inc. I'm Peter Von Gaum. In this podcast, we're going to go back to the 1960s, and we're going to take a deep look at a still unsolved murder mystery. And one of the key players is from the Kennedy dynasty, none other than JFK, the president of the United States at the time. Now, it's no secret that JFK was a big-time womanizer. That's a fact. I'm surprised the dude got anything done in the office. He was chasing interns, movie stars. He made Bill Clinton look like an altar boy. And Jackie Kennedy, she knew all about those love affairs. Apparently, she accepted them because she knew JFK would always come back to her. And it was common among men of the elite to have extramarital affairs. Jackie's father, by the way, John Bouvier, was also a known womanizer. Incredibly, JFK employed a guy who was his special assistant tasked with finding beautiful women that were willing to sleep with the president. And he also used the Secret Service to help him smuggle those women in and out of the White House. Now, this was the early 1960s. It was one of the most tumultuous and divisive decades in world history, marked by the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and anti-war protests not to mention political assassinations and the emerging generation gap. I want you to listen to this short note. It's a love letter written by the commander-in-chief, JFK himself, and the intended recipient would later wind up murdered. Why don't you leave suburbia for once? Come and see me, either here or at the Cape next week or in Boston on the 19th. I know it is unwise irrational, in that you may hate it. On the other hand, you may not, and I will love it. You say that it's not good for me to get what I want. After all of these years, you should give me a more loving answer than that. Why don't you just say yes? That letter was written in October of 1963 by the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, to Mary Pincho Meyer, his mistress, an affair whose public memory far outlived both of its participants. And yet, what would render it so memorable would not occur until after it had ended. One year later, on October 12, 1964, 11 months after Kennedy's assassination, 10 days after the release of the Warren Commission report, asserting that there was no evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was part of any conspiracy, domestic or foreign, to assassinate President Kennedy, Mary was shot and murdered during her daily walk along the old Chesapeake and Ohio Canal towpath in Georgetown, in a manner that has since been commonly referred to as execution style. Two bullet wounds, the first to the back and the side of her head, and the second one through her shoulder blade, severing the artery carrying blood to the heart. FBI forensics experts would testify that the dark halos on the skin around both entry wounds meant that both shots had been fired at close range, possibly point-blank. It was that precision and particular placements of the gunshots that led the District of Columbia medical examiner to conclude that the killer was someone highly trained in the use of firearms. A dead president, more myth than president, 
condemned to eternal speculation regarding the possible involvement of the CIA in his assassination. A president's mistress, often reported in the months afterwards, to have adopted an intense interest in and suspicion regarding the assassination's official narrative, and the mistress's former husband, a high-level CIA official. What bound and will forever bind these three individuals together is a series of events that might simply be a collection of purely random occurrences and coincidences, forcibly linked and jammed together in a contrived manner to appease conspiracy nuts, or that might be the perfectly designed mess of apparently random occurrences and coincidences, and that might, that just might, exist purely to cover up an even grander mess, the grandest mess, that fateful day on November 22nd, 1963. Just what makes the murder of Mary so enduringly suspicious? There is an undeniably considerable amount of question marks. To get even the greatest conspiracy loather to, if not assume some conspiracy in the role of instigator, to at the very least raise a brow or two. The manner of the shooting and the entire crime itself, the expert opinions of both FBI forensics and medical examiners do maintain a quick, clean, and highly efficient method of approach. No physical assault, no sexual angle to the crime, no common thug, no random, sloppy attack. What was the motive? What did the assailant want? To just walk up to a person and execute them? What did they stand to gain from that? Mary allegedly carried no purse and no valuables at all. So, no physical angle to the crime, and no material gain either. Again, what was the motive? What would be the motive for the average assailant once these options have been removed? Can even one consider an average assailant anymore, taking into account the already anything-but-average execution, and now added on to that the unlikelihood of any average motive? Mary was said to have been outspoken about Jack Kennedy's assassination, and quite skeptical of the recently released Warren report. Did she know something worth silencing her over? And even if she didn't, perhaps merely her allegedly vocal skepticism of the Warren report, as Kennedy's former mistress, was enough? Mary's former marriage to a high-ranking CIA officer. Is there a chance she ever discovered, overheard something she shouldn't have? And again, even if she didn't, was the possibility dangerous enough? Even more brow-raising than the circumstances throughout the crime itself are the ones that unfolded during its aftermath. Now listen to this. When journalist Ben Bradley, Mary's brother-in-law, entered Mary's apartment in the wake of the murder, he encountered James Jesus Angleton, chief of CIA counterintelligence, one of the top spies on the planet. In many versions of the story, Angleton came by twice in a focused search for documents. Mary's diary has become something of a fabled item, often said to have contained undisclosed information regarding Kennedy's assassination. According to journalist James Truitt, Meyer had told his wife Anne 
She was keeping a diary and had asked her to safeguard it if anything ever happened to her. Ann Truitt, who was living in Tokyo when Meyer was murdered, called Mary's sister, Tony, and Ben Bradley and told them of the diary and its location. Now, it's worth pointing out that James Angleton's wife, Cicely Angleton, was another close personal friend of Mary Pinchot Meyer. Did she know something about the diary? It's also worth pointing out that those who did read the diary reportedly said it confirmed Meyer's intimate friendship with Kennedy, but gave no suggestion it contained any information about his assassination. Now, what could have been in there that was so vital to have someone like Angleton sent to retrieve it? Merely scandalous content related to a dead president? Love letters? Or something more? There is also the small matter of the black man in a light jacket, dark slacks, and a dark cap standing over the body of a white woman, as witnessed by Henry Wiggins, a car mechanic. Wiggins reported to have heard a woman cry out, Someone help me! Someone help me! He heard two gunshots and ran to the edge of the wall overlooking the towpath and saw him. Ray Crump Jr. was arrested and charged with Mary's murder. Police tests were unable to show that Crump had fired the 38 caliber Smith & Wesson gun. There were no trace of nitrates on his hands or clothes. Despite an extensive search of the area, no gun could be found. This included a two-day search of the towpath by 40 police officers. The police also drained the canal near to the murder scene. Police scuba divers searched the waters away from where Mary was killed. However, no gun could be found. Was Crump meant to be a patsy? Much like another oft-assumed scapegoat in another controversial investigation of a high-profile assassination? Another Lee Harvey Oswald? But this time, a Lee Harvey Oswald that didn't stick? It's a more than noteworthy aspect of this story, and one that is far too often overlooked, that Mary Meyer was not the only remarkable woman at the center of this tale. This is in reference to the memorable defense of Crump, a defense that by all accounts, purely historically speaking, should not have taken place, should not have been afforded to Crump, who was poised to take the fall for everything, to be the neat little bow that would neatly file this one away along with countless others like it, and as such delegitimatize even the mildest questioning of what would have been a widely accepted explanation. The woman in question is none other than Dovey Johnson Roundtree. Roundtree, who passed away in 2018 at the ripe old age of 104, was a renowned civil rights activist and attorney. She took on the defense of Ray Crump Jr. for a fee of $1, basing a significant part of her defense on Crump's undeniably timid and feeble-minded state arguing that because he was so timid and feeble-minded, if he indeed was guilty, he would surely have confessed during police interrogation. In a case that drew record crowds of lawyers, law students, and reporters to the United States District Court, the potentially brow-raising question marks did not subside. Here's some points to note. None of the newspaper reports of the trial 
identified the true work of Mary's former husband, Cord Meyer. He was described as a government official or an author, but never as the senior CIA officer that he was. The trial judge was Howard Corcoran. He was the brother of Tommy Corcoran, a close friend of Lyndon B. Johnson. Corcoran had been appointed by Johnson soon after he became president. It is generally acknowledged that Corcoran was under Johnson's control. His decision to insist that Mary's private life should not be mentioned in court was very important in disguising the possible motive for the murder. This information was also kept from Crump's lawyer, Dovey Roundtree. Although she attempted to investigate Mary's background, she found little information about her. Quote, it was as if she existed only on the towpath on the day she was murdered. Bradley, Mary Pincho Meyer's brother-in-law, who had entered her apartment to inspect things after she was murdered, was the first witness called to the stand. Alfred L. Hantman, the chief prosecutor, asked him under oath what he found when he searched Mary's studio. Bradley replied that he found a pocketbook, keys, wallet, cosmetics, and pencils. He didn't tell the court that he found a diary that he had passed on to James Jesus Engleton. During the trial, Wiggins was unable to positively identify Raymond Krupp as the man standing over Meyer's body. The prosecution was also handicapped by the fact that the police had been unable to find the murder weapon at the scene of the crime or to provide a credible motive for the crime. Crump was acquitted of all charges. The case remains unsolved. Was this just an unlikely intervention by someone, successfully throwing a wrench into the system's programmed response? Disrupting the formation of yet another cover-up narrative? Or was it actually an instance of an incredibly gifted and skilled attorney managing to exonerate a guilty man? A man who would go on to live what has been described as a horrific life of crime. So, at least on the surface, not seeming incapable of such an act? The only certainty in this case are question marks. So, does it all end there? Does it all end with mysteries unsolved, unsatisfying threads unfinished and dangling, and no puzzle piece to be found that illuminates the rest, that grants shape to something so famously shapeless? Not quite. There is one outstanding piece left on the table, though its shape and placement, and whether it even fits at all, all remain to be, hopefully, one day seen. Well, buckle up, folks, because now the plot gets even thicker. There is one figure that permeates this entire narrative from its very absolute beginning, from before its beginning even, and this figure permeates it in a manner that is both so central and inseparable, and yet also detached and potentially meaningless. On October 12, 1964, minutes before the first gunshot was fired, at least so it was claimed, Air Force Lieutenant William L. Mitchell would, unbeknownst to him, or perhaps, depending on who you ask, very much beknownst, become, in the words of Prosecutor Alfred Hantman, the last person to see Mary alive. The morning after the murder, Mitchell came to the police and stated that while he was on his daily lunchtime run, he had witnessed, first, a woman whose description closely matched that of Mary, 
and then a black man walking in the same direction as her, about 200 yards behind her. He became the second witness of Crump. Mitchell has long been a central figure of discourse and speculation. His influential and pivotal role that day as the second witness, in combination with theories that he had undisclosed ties to government intelligence services, has led many people to believe that he was planted there that day with that specific assignment to further establish and ensure the guilty image of Crump. No one man, at least when it comes to what is publicly known and available, has dedicated as much effort, research, and time, most of all, to investigating the possible role of William L. Mitchell as Peter Janney. A writer, psychologist, and lecturer, Janney had close ties to the Myers from an early age, as well as general environment and people that would surround this case. His father, whom Janney has stated he considers to have been part of the conspiracy to assassinate Mary, was a senior CIA career official, while his mother graduated from Vassar College in the same class as Mary. Janney was also good friends with Mary's son, Michael, and very fond of Mary. He is best known as the author of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pincho Meyer, and their vision for world peace, in which he makes the argument that Mary's murder was orchestrated by the CIA in order to prevent her from publicizing what she had discovered concerning Kennedy's assassination. In his book, he states, No one ever questioned who Lt. William L. Mitchell actually was, or what he was doing on the morning of October 12, 1964. Instead, everyone, the police, the media, the entire city, took Mitchell at his word. Yet no one has ever corroborated Mitchell's presence on the towpath the day of Mary Meyer's murder. Truthfully, there is no certainty Mitchell was actually there that day, because his entire story is unsupported by anyone other than himself. Following Mitchell's 2014 deposition, in which he testified under oath regarding his potential ties to intelligence services, no, never, I never went into any kind of intelligence. Janney would go on to engage the U.S. Army, the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, and the Defense Finance Accounting Services in a two-year battle to release Mitchell's military service records and his 201 personnel file, as permitted by the Freedom of Information Act. Many of these records clearly documented Mitchell's intelligence affiliations, and thus contradicted his 2014 deposition testimony. In January 2016, Mitchell was asked to respond to 20 questions concerning discrepancies in his deposition testimony, as well as new information revealed in government documents. Through his attorney, he declined to respond. In the summer of 2012, Janney allegedly tracked Mitchell down, living in California and working as a professor at then Cal State Hayward, to, quote, confront him. It was August of 2012, four months after the publication of his book, that Peter Janney showed up at William Mitchell's doorstep. Apparently, he had hidden a digital tape recorder inside a notebook that he carried with him to record all conversations that he had with Mitchell. The meeting, however, did not go well. According to Janney's telling of the story, he knocked on Mitchell's door and introduced himself as politely as he could, and Mitchell got very upset. 
and the door was shut in his face. He had brought along a copy of his book, in which he makes a case that Mitchell was an active participant in a conspiracy to murder Mary, and offered him a copy, which, apparently, didn't help the situation at all. Janney adamantly insists that William Mitchell was working covertly for the CIA and was part of a five- or six-man assassination team that ran this operation on October 12th. Whether he has indeed uncovered with his research some unnoticed-by-anyone-else earth-shattering truth about the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer, we may never know. In 1992, Peter Janney met author Leo Damore, who for the past two years had been working on his own book regarding Mary's murder, back then tentatively titled Burden of Guilt. The two became friends and had numerous meetings, during which Damore shared with Janney much of what he had researched and uncovered regarding the relationship between JFK and Mary Pincho Meyer, and how he believed her murder had been orchestrated. By this time, Damore had already published an 80s bestseller, Senatorial Privilege, the Chappaquiddick cover-up, presenting the claim that Ted Kennedy and his attorneys had quashed an investigation into the accident and resulting death of Mary Jo Kopechny, a campaign worker for Robert F. Kennedy, who died in a car accident while being driven by Ted Kennedy, a book not directly pertinent to Mary's life, but potentially very much pertinent to Damore's life. In 1995, Damore committed suicide, before he could finish the manuscript of this book. His son, Nick Damore, has famously said that the last time he saw his father, Leo had told him, if anything ever happens to me, there's a box under my bed for you. That night, he claims to have crawled under his father's bed and seen a metal strongbox. About two weeks later, Leo Damore, age 66, killed himself in the bathroom of his Connecticut apartment. Nick never saw that metal strongbox again, nor did he ever find his father's unfinished manuscript. Nick has publicly shared his thoughts regarding the possibility that his father simply knew too much. He shared his opinion that his father didn't get the message with Chappaquiddick, which was to back off a little bit. He also mentioned that his father talked about how he got threats, calls in the middle of the night, people threatening to burn the house down. He went on to express his belief that he was getting too close, and at one point he claimed to have gotten the diary that outlined the relationship between Mary and JFK. He also thought he'd found out who had killed her. There were lawsuits. He thought he was being followed. Now he's potentially going after the CIA, and that's when he starts spiraling down. He mentioned how part of Leo's story is that he experienced such a clear attempt to stop him from pursuing stories about the Kennedys. I think Leo kept pushing it a little bit. And there's the drop in the drink thing, referencing how following Leo Demore's death, a close friend of his reportedly told Nick that a drop in the drink can change anything. Janney has stated in his book his belief that Leo Demore was very likely poisoned into uncontrollable despair. An affair, defined by something that occurred after it had ended. A murder case whose most illuminating events, no matter how unsung, might have come long after it had officially ended, and even longer 
after it faded from public prominence, perhaps even yet to come. In 2007, CIA agent and Watergate figure E. Howard Hunt passed away. Not even three months after his death, his sons, St. John Hunt and David Hunt, came forward with the claim that their father had recorded several claims about himself and others being involved in a conspiracy to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. On April 5, 2007, in that day's issue of Rolling Stone, St. John Hunt describes how his father drew a diagram of the alleged conspirators. This is so interesting. Listen to this quote from the article. E. Howard scribbled the initials LBJ, standing for Kennedy's ambitious vice president, Lyndon Johnson. Under LBJ, connected by a line, he wrote the name Cord Meyer. Meyer was a CIA agent whose wife had had an affair with JFK. Of course, this is Mary Pincho Meyer they're talking about. Later, she was murdered, a case that's never been solved. Next, his father connected to Meyer's name, the name Bill Harvey, another CIA agent. Also connected to Meyer's name was the name David Morales, yet another CIA man, and a well-known, particularly vicious black ops specialist. And then his father connected to Morales' name with a line, the framed words, French gunman Grassy Knoll. Ooh. Opinions regarding the legitimacy of these findings have varied. E. Howard Hunt's widow and other children have all accused St. John and David of taking advantage of their father's loss of lucidity and coaching him for their own financial gain. An examination by the Los Angeles Times of materials offered by the two sons found them to be inconclusive. Quiet truths that under some different light proclaimed by a different messenger manifested in a different time, could have shaken the world. In February of 2001, writer C. David Heyman requested an interview with Cord Meyer, who at the time was himself dying of lymphoma. Heyman asked Meyer if he had told the truth in his book, Facing Reality, From World Federalism to the CIA, when he had stated that he was satisfied by the conclusions of the police investigation that Mary had been the victim of a sexually motivated assault by a single individual and that she had been killed in her struggle to escape. Meyer said this in reply, My father died of a heart attack the same year Mary was killed, he whispered. It was a bad time. And what did he have to say about Mary? Who was responsible for her death? He said, The same sons of bitches that killed John F. Kennedy. That letter from Kennedy to Mary was written in October of 1963, but it was never sent. In 2016, it was auctioned and sold for just under $89,000. Things unfinished, purposes left undone. Things as they appear on the surface, forever doomed to that undeserving, inadequate perception of their selves, with so much more beneath that, the sad truth is we might never get to know. A relationship much more than an affair, with much left unsaid. A painter's dreams unrealized, so much more than just a mistress. A president's agenda unrealized, 
Now, no more than just a simplified, reductive, reduced, patronizing myth. A woman's voice unheard. Her words never to be uttered. A mystery unsolved. Forever that. Paused forever. As suddenly as when that shot was fired. As suddenly as when the second one was. Paused. When he put that letter back in the drawer. Mary Pincho Meyer was so much more than just JFK's mistress. She was a 43-year-old artist, talented, beautiful, and her life was snuffed out. And the taker or takers of that life may forever remain a mystery. Well, I hope you enjoyed this story about Mary Pincho Meyer. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. All the controversies surrounding the Kennedys and the JFK presidency and all the affairs, and that alone is enough material for a podcast. Perhaps something worth looking into. I'd like to invite you to rate this podcast, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Be a pal and click the stars and leave a comment if you would. If you're listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, you can scroll down to the bottom and you'll see a place where you can write a review. This helps us tremendously in getting our podcast into more ears. Thank you very much. Also, make sure you subscribe so you'll get notifications as soon as a new episode is released. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive homiciding podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homiciding Podcast, you can always buy us a cup of coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website where you can hear all the podcasts and see some other cool stuff. Thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao for now.